Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Podcast, where we distill hundreds of books and worthwhile resources from every imaginable field, saving you time and effort by highlighting key points in a simple, condensed format. You can access all the book summaries and more at blaz.com. That's B-L-A-S.com. The Rabbit Hole is a labor of love, so if you want to support it, you can sign up for our newsletter at blast.com slash newsletter. And if you're looking to join a curated, high-quality community of lifelong learners, you should join The Latticework. Learn more at blast.com slash The Latticework. In today's episode, we'll be covering Running Down a Dream by Bill Gurley. So thanks for having me so believe it or not. I've been thinking about giving this particular presentation for about a decade, and I've been talking to the administration I was inspired after studying the stories of three people that you might call luminaries. They were probably heroes of mine when I read about him and I notice an overlap, a pattern amongst them, and so that's what I'm here to talk to you about. Now, how many people in the room have heard of the phrase, dream job, raise your hand, all right? Everybody's heard the phrase, so you know what it means. It means chasing a career where you just have immense passion. My partner Kevin Harvey has a phrase that I love. He says life is a use it or lose it proposition, and for most humans, they take one career path. And so if you only got one shot, and then it's all over, why not do what makes you most happy? And so what I'd like to do, so by the way, one of the reasons this is the audience I want to thank you for being here, this is the audience I wanted to do this presentation to first, because I think coming to an MBA program is this an amazingly unique opportunity you have to come. You've had your undergrad degree, you've worked a little bit, and now you have this chance to go do whatever you want. And it's an amazing pivot point, and so for me, you're the opportune audience for this, and obviously I wanted to come back to Texas to do it. So thanks for having me. So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to start by telling three stories of these luminaries, and then after that, I'm going to walk through five guidelines that I've inferred from what they did, and then there's, there's some special stories at the end as well. Starting in Orville, Ohio, which happens to be, anyone know what company was founded in Orville in 1897? I'll give you 20 bucks if anybody knows. That has nothing to do with this presentation. So the first gentleman I'm talking about is a guy named Robert Montgomery that grew up in Orville. This is in 1940, and this is what the town looked like when he did. He attended Orville High School, where he was a three-sport letterman baseball, football, basketball. He was lucky enough. One of his neighbors knew the coach Fred Taylor at Ohio State, and he was able to get a spot on a really good basketball team. This is Robert, number 24. He's a point guard. That's him peering into the huddle. That's Fred Taylor, the coach of Ohio State at the time. Robert wasn't a starter. He came off the bench and he didn't get a ton of minutes. But this team had John Havlicek and Jerry Cousy and John Cassian and his sophomore year, they won the national championship. They played in the national championship his junior and senior year. Those two players that I mentioned went on to the NBA and Robert went into coaching has spent his first year as a J. V coach at a high school and then finagled his way onto the staff at Army, and so, at 22, he was an assistant at Army. The Black Knights they played here in Gill's Fieldhouse. When he was 24, the head coach retired and he begged for the job. This is him signing a contract, so at 24, he became head coach of a D1 school. Now, what ended up making Robert successful from my point of view isn't what happened inside the four walls of the gym where they practice every day. It's what he did outside in the first five years of his coaching career. He befriended five of the top basketball minds on the East Coast. This is Red Auerbach, so Havlicek went to Boston, and Red was the coach at the time. He was able to build a relationship through that. 
There's Joe Lapchick, that's Claire B. Claire B. coached at Long Island University and has the best record of any coach in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Robert met Claire when he was 25. When he was 27, Robert drove Claire to Claire's induction into the Basketball Hall of Fame and sat next to him. The next one's Henry Eva. He coached 36 years at Oklahoma State and was at the time probably one of the most successful basketball coaches of all time. That's ever deemed from Indiana, and he met all of them and became friends. Two of them Lapchick and Eva. He just went to a coach's luncheon where he knew they were going to be, and he begged. He said, can I sit next to you? And that's how he met both of them, and then he kept following up and hanging out. A year later, he met Pete New. Pete was the greatest basketball mind on the West Coast. At the time, they became fast friends. Years later, Pete would induct Robert into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He didn't limit his peer network to basketball coaches. He met football coaches as well. This was the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, Bo Schembechler, who would go on to coach at Michigan was his assistant on the basketball team in Army. And he met Bill Parcells at around the same time, way before Bill became a star in the National Football League. And then Doc Councilman was the longtime swimming coach at Indiana, and also someone that Robert became friends with. Now I'm using the name Robert to obscure things a little bit I'm talking about Bobby Knight. So at age 31, Bobby Knight became head coach at Indiana University. Five years later, at 36, they went undefeated, both in the regular season and the postseason. Won a national championship that's never been repeated since in over four decades at Indiana. He would win three national championships, four Coach of the Year awards, 11 Big Ten titles, and when he retired, he had 902 victories than most of any coach at the time. As I said, Pete New inducted Bobby into the Hall of Fame. I'm going to move on to the next story, and then I'll circle back and you'll see where I'm going. I'm going to start in Hibbing, Minnesota. This is about two or three hours north of Minneapolis. Another Robert Robert Zimmerman grew up in Hibbing. That's what Hibbing looked like when he was young. Even though it's pretty far north of Minnesota, it was a bit of an urban environment. Robert loved music, and in this early photo, he's got a drum. He got a guitar when he was 10 years old, and by high school was playing in a band regularly. They used to cover Elvis and Little Richard. His yearbook says that he's likely to join Little Richard. That didn't happen. But what happened was he went to the University of Minnesota. He didn't go to class. He was hanging out in this place called Dinkytown, which is this photo right here. And at the time, you know, and this is late 50s, early 60s, there's a lot of new stuff happening. Even though he grew up playing rock and roll, he fell in love with folk music and over, I'd say, eight or nine months, he studied every folk album he possibly could. He didn't have a lot of money back at the time. He couldn't have a lot of money back at the time. You could walk into a record store and listen in a booth. He would do that for hours on hours on hours. He became friends with people that also liked folk music, but had money, and he would go to their house and listen to their record collection. He's even accused of having, quote, borrowed their records and not returned them, which is a point of controversy even still today. The next thing that happened, I think, is one of the most ambitious actions anyone that I know has taken to pursue their dream job. He hitchhiked from Minneapolis to New York City. He had a guitar, a suitcase, and $10, and it's 1,200 miles right. And so if you ask him today why he did it, he'll talk a little bit about chasing the performers. So this is Dave Van Ronk, Peggy Seeger, the new Lost City Ramblers. These were people he was listening to in Minnesota, but these people were in New York City, and so he wanted to see them. But there was really one person he wanted to see, which was Woody Guthrie. So Woody Guthrie becomes his hero, and if you just go to Wikipedia once, you find out who this is, if you don't know already. 
He went to New York to find Woody Guthrie, like that was his pursuit, because he had come to have this affection and love for the way Woody played, and he wanted to know everything he possibly could about it. So he went to New York, he found Woody Guthrie, used to perform for him, and he started hanging out at these three venues, the cafe, wow, the Gaslight Cafe, and Gerda's Folk City. This was the epicenter of folk music at the time, and he would sit in each of these venues for hours upon hours and study what the other artists were doing. Years later, Liam Clancy would say he could perform any one of our songs like us, including tonality, tempo, everything. So he was a mimic. He was studying, studying, studying. They got a big break. He was asked to open for John Lee Hooker at Gerda's one day, and his career got started. This gentleman's Joe Hammond. He was a producer for Aretha Franklin, Billie Holiday, Count Basie, and one day he walked in and found this gentleman in 1961. I think he's 22 or 23, so he's something like that. The next year, Robert Zimmerman changes his name to Bob Dylan. John releases the first album. The album does okay. In 63, they released their freewheelin' Bob Dylan. This album goes to number 22 in the U.S. and number 1 in the U.S. and number 1 in the U.E.K. And from there, everything was off into the races. In 63, he performed at the March on Washington with Joan Baez, where Martin Luther King spoke his famous speech. A year later, he performed for the first time with Johnny Cash, another one of his heroes. Johnny gave him a guitar and asked if he could record several of his songs. Johnny asked Bob if he could record his songs, which he did, and the rest is history, as they say. A hundred million albums sold, eleven Grammys, an Oscar, an Emmy. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and then he took it to a whole new level, Kennedy Center Award with Clinton. Barack Obama gave him a Medal of Freedom, and then he topped it off with something that's never been done. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature, the only musician ever to be given such an award. That happened two years ago. Amazing story. All right. This one you won't know as well, but it's equally inspiring. St. Louis, Missouri. The person this time is named Daniel. He grew up in St. Louis. His father was an intelligence officer in the military and moved around Europe quite a bit. After the war ended, his father became a travel agent and his mother worked with him, and so they traveled quite a bit. Now, because they were travel agents, his mom told him he had to journal everything so he was forced to go on vacation and take notes. He wasn't that interested in travel, but he loved food, and so when he went back and looked all the journal notes he'd always taken were always about the food they were eating wherever they were, and he started to associate different places with the food. He went to John Burroughs High School in St. Louis, ended up at Trinity College in Connecticut, where he would spend every weekend in New York City eating food because that's what he was passionate about. He got a policy major. He went and worked on a campaign for a year. Wasn't that interesting to him, so he went back to New York? Robert Zimmerman was chasing folk music. Danny was chasing food. So his personal life was all about what he could do and go into different restaurants and exploring. He went to work for Checkpoint. They make those things that you attach to clothes in the store so that when you walk out, the beeper goes off. This was early in Checkpoint's life. He did incredibly well there and within a year was making 125000 a year as a salesman, which... He spent the most of it on, on food in New York City. One night he was out to eat with his uncle and his aunt and his grandmother at Elios, a restaurant that's still open, and he told him that he was studying for the LLSAT. He was going to take the LSAT next year and go up his career ladder again and become a lawyer, to which his uncle replied, Will you just stop it? Why don't you go open a restaurant? You know that's what you're supposed to do. It caught him a little off guard, but woke him up, and the next day he took the LLSAT. 
He never sent the scores to a single school, never applied to a single school. He quit his job as a salesman and went to work at a restaurant called Pesk in the front office for $12,500. So he took a 10 times salary reduction. The reason he chose Pesque is there was a chef there, an up-and-coming chef called Michael Romano, and he wanted to be around this gentleman, and so he would work during the day in the front office, and then at night, he begged to do the slop work in the kitchen, just so he could get exposure to what was happening. There he was, also taking a wine class at night, and he met this gentleman who happened to be the head or one of the top restaurant critics for the New York Times. And so they started hanging out together and going to different restaurants and talking and learning. He did something really interesting. He made a list of 12 icons in the restaurant industry. These were new people that were doing innovative things around opening new high-end restaurants. Wolfgang Puck's the first one, but there were 12 different. A lot of them are on celebrity chef shows today, and he started studying them. He created a notebook for each and every one of what makes them special, what they do uniquely, and started looking at their recipes. Then he got even bolder and decided to go to Europe. He took every single one of the connections he had both in the restaurant industry and in the travel industry through his parents. Plus, when he was at a trinity, he would go do tours in in Europe for his parents, and so he had a lot of connections. And he did this. Now I just had to look this up for the presentation. It's a stodgy airy, which I think is a French word for all working at a restaurant for free. Because that's what he did. One of the restaurants that he worked in, he had to pay $500 a month. Which I, I ran the math, and that's equal to a negative $25,000 a year salary. So he's gone from making $125 to $12 to now. He's upside down $25. But what he does is what you think he would do. He studies so in each and every one of these places, 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 each and every... One of these restaurants, he's watching the chef, he's watching the recipes he goes on, the sourcing trips to see how they pick food out of markets, or from different fish markets, and he just takes tons of notes. He looks at the decor, looks at the wine list, and so on the way home from this, like, nine-month journey... He said it took the entire eight-and-a-half-hour flight just to organize the notes. When he gets back to New York, he'll spend another six or seven months searching a hundred locations to find the very best location to launch his first restaurant. He's 27 years old when he opened Union Square Cafe. This is Danny Mayer. I love this quote. He's most proud of the studying he did on his own, not the studying that he did at a eternity college, and he viewed this as the best work he'd ever done as a student. Union Square Cafe is still open today. Eleven times the gate has said, it's the very best restaurant in New York. Danny Mayer would go on to launch 16 high-end restaurants in New York City 4, have won Michael and Stars. He is the undisputed king of high-end restaurants in New York City, but he wasn't done. A lot of these restaurants Danny would open in areas that needed regentrification. He had a philosophy that if he could build a restaurant, it could become the, the bespoke place that people go and in the community of all that he would get a lift alongside that. So he typically would look for areas that were on the rise, but needed help. One area that needed a lot of help was Madison Square Park, which wasn't far from Union Square, so he and a bunch of other business people helped launch the Madison Square Conservancy that rebuilt the park. A few years after that happened, they started improving the park. There was a decision made to open to allow there to be a restaurant in the center of the park. He applied, got the bid, and won, and that was the location of the first Shake Shack. A while later, I'm going to go through something, so you'll see the work that went into launching the first Shake Shack. If you go to the first Shake Shack, it doesn't look like this. If you want to eat it, looks like this when it's open. 
There's always a line. I got to know Danny on the open table board we worked together for over a decade, and he used to tell me I had to keep it a secret, but that this single venue made way more profit than any of the white tablecloth restaurants that he owned. Of course, fast forward today, there's 190 Shake Shacks around the world. In 2015, they took Shake Shack public on the NYC, and it's now worth $2.2 billion. I think there's one here in Austin, correct? So these were the three stories I had read them all independently, and I noticed that there was a similar strain that was running through each and every one of these stories. And so now I've organized that I won't talk to you about it? The first one is the one that I can provide the least amount of help with you about because I don't know what your passions are, but my first piece of advice would be to find your passion, pick a profession of which you have a deep personal interest. There's nothing that's going to make you be more successful than if you love doing what you're doing because you're going to work harder than anybody else, because it's not going to feel like work, it's going to feel like fun. So I think this is the most important decision you can possibly make in a career, is to make sure you have immense passion for what you're doing. This should be your personal passion, not your parents, not your sisters, not your family generation of expectation. It needs to be something that you're doing on your own. It might be that you're passionate about the same things as your parents. So like, don't you have to run from them? But you need to know that this is something you're doing on your own. And then, I also mentioned status and compensation. You know there are a lot of high-profile careers that make a lot of money and are generally perceived to be areas where successful people go. But if you run at those things and don't have a passion for them, you're going to burn out eventually. It's not going to be where you want to be. And that, in the last point, is just... You can't fake it, like somebody else sitting in some other MBA program has a deep passion for for whatever career path you're going down, and they're going to smoke you if you don't have it yourself. This is one of my favorite quotes from Bobby Knight. He says everybody has the will to win. People don't have the will to practice. And I think this is the test for whether or not you're actually pursuing your dream job, which is the, the essence of it that would be considered studying or work or practice. Do you enjoy that part? Like, do you enjoy the preparation? everybody enjoys winning. Like, do you enjoy the preparation? The second of the five guidelines I'd have for you is when your craft constantly. It's extremely important to be obsessive about understanding everything you possibly can about your craft. Consider it an obligation, right? Hold yourself accountable. That requires you to keep learning over time. Study the history. Know the pioneers. It's the bedrock foundation for what you're going to build upon, and it will help you in networking that you're able to talk the language of the people that came before you, strive to know more than everyone else about your particular craft, and that can be in a subgroup. And what do I mean by that? Let's say you love esports. You grew up gaming. I love it. All right, within the first six months of being in this program, you should be the most knowledgeable person at McCombs in esports. Like that's doable. You should be able to do that. And then by the end of your first year, you should be top five of all MBA. Students, and hopefully when you exit your second year, you're number one of any MBA, MBA student out there. It doesn't mean you're the best uh, sports person in the world, but you've, you've separated yourself from everyone else that's out there. It's not I can't make you the smartest of the brightest, but it's quite doable to be the most knowledgeable. It's possible to gather more information than somebody else, especially today. And then lastly, and this is a bit of a caveat depending on what it is that you're chasing, you might want to go to where the epicenter is, and the reason is, there's just more networking available there, if that's where the great people are. And the next two bullet points will tie into that. 
This is an interesting story from, from Bobby Knight's biography. His second time he met with Pete New, he walked into the room, so this guy is like 32. Pete New is the most famous basketball coaches ever. He walks into the room with 74 plays diagrammed on 3x5 cards, sits down in the middle of the floor, and said, Hey, Pika, come go through these with me. Like, I don't know if it's audacious or brilliant or what, but some people would consider that over the top, but to get the number one winner you can possibly find and make them go through that amount of tedious work. But he did it. Pete did it. They both learned from it, which is interesting. These quotes from the movie No Direction Home Martin Scorsese did against Dylan really highlight the point that I'm trying to drive home to you. Most people would think of Bob Dylan, a folk singer. You know, probably just had the DNA or got lucky or something. He was studying, like he used the word I'm a musical expeditionary. I looked up expeditionary. An expedition is to travel for scientific research or exploration, and that's what Dylan was doing. He was, there was no one that knew more about folk music than he did. When he broke out, he knew more than anybody. And then this other guy in Minneapolis, who knew him called him a sponge. And then this. There's a ruthlessness in the way Dylan finds sources, uses them, and moves on constantly gathering information and putting it into his own repertoire. I'm going to read from Danny's book for you because I want to drive home this point of studying. You can see I'm a huge fan of Danny. I've got all these markers here. He's one of the most genuine humans I've ever met. So he has a restaurant in New York called Blue Smoke, which is actually a barbecue place. So when they were thinking about launching that, he says in the barbecue within the 35-mile radius of Austin and the Texas Hill Country Live Five Towns, I revere each with a distinctly different style of barbecue. The elements of barbecue are limited ribs, brisket, pulled pork chop, pork mince, pork sausage, chicken, coleslaw, beans, and a handful of sides. But it's become an American culinary language with thousands of dialects and accents. I tried to understand each variation during one 36-hour road trip through North Carolina. I tasted 14 variations on chopped pork, each defined by a subtle and dramatic differences in texture, the degree and type of smoke used, the amount of tomato or vinegar in the sauce, and how much heat was applied to the meat, and how well and how much or how little crackling got chopped in and up and tossed in. That's the level of detail he thinks about food. I really like this one because it has to do with Shake Shack. But as soon as we won the bid, Richard Corinne, my most enthusiastic researcher of road food, and I set off to study burger and shake stands all over the country. We started out, of course, at Ted Roos Steak and Shake in St. Louis, which he grew up eating, continued on to Kansas City, and individually made stops in Michigan, Culver, Los Angeles in and out Burger, Napa Taylor's Automatic Refresh, for Chicago Gold Coast Dogs, plus eight other establishments, Connecticut and Names, three or four, always in search of the best to breed. So that's how they did research for for Shake Shack, and I think it drives home this point of, like, understand more than anybody else. This is a bit of an aside. Does anybody know this painting? This is a painting called First Communion. It was painted by Pablo Picasso when it was 15 years old. Most people, I think, are brought up, and they're told about Picasso in their first art class, and you look at these Cubism pictures, and someone will say, oh, a seven-year-old could do that. What they don't know is that Picasso was a trained classic artist, and in it mastered by the time he was 15. And he had spent time studying the way you would if you had set out to be the greatest painter in the world, and that's why I made this statement, greatness isn't random, it's earned. If you're going to research something, this is your lucky day. Information is freely available on the internet, that's the good news. 
The bad news is you have zero excuse for not being the most knowledgeable on any subject you want because it's right there at your fingertips and it's free, which is excellent. 3. Develop mentors in your field. I don't know if any of you will ever dare to be as aggressive as Dylan hitchhiking 1,200 miles to find your mentor, but that might be the type of attitude you want to think about in the back of your mind as you pursue mentors. Take every chance you can to find somebody who can teach you about the fields you want to excel in, and you can work your way up the stack. You don't have to jump straight to the top on day one. Treat them with respect, debate things, learn from them, document what you hear, share it with others, try to get these mentors interested in you and your own development. How do you do this? Send them notes, tell them when you use their advice to be successful, send them gifts, when you have accomplishments, get them bought in. You know, like one of the reasons American Idol works is because you start voting. They're cheering for somebody, and all of a sudden you feel like you're part of that process, right? Get them to feel that way about your own success, and then on the mentor thing, like, never stop. You gotta keep on pursuing them. I had the remarkable fortune this year and my 20th year as an investor to meet Stan Druckenmiller and Howard Marks, and these are two people I've admired for a very long time. I read everything that they write, anytime they speak, and I got to sit down with both of them for a couple of hours and talk about investing. It was awesome, and the things that they pushed on changed some of the actions that I'm taking today in my work. I'd already walked you through these examples. Every one of these three luminaries had a mentor that was important to him. A funny story last week when I was preparing for this presentation. I was rereading Danny's book, and I went back to this notion when he was 25, and he made this list of people that he considered to be icons in the industry. So I texted him. I said, Danny, how many of those 12 icons have you ended up establishing a relationship with? And he sent me this emoji back. I was thrilled that he knew how to use emojis. He went on to tell me that four of them have become close personal friends, and I think it just documents this point I'm making about how it's an ever-searching for mentors, and leaning on mentors is a never-ending task. For embrace peers in your field, develop relations with them, have discussions, have arguments. This is the way you learn. This is the way that ideas get shared. This is the way you hone and innovate ideas. It is one thing I wish someone had told me when I got to MBEMB. School. Everybody said network, 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 and I thought it was a social activity. I thought they were like telling me, oh, you need to develop your social skills, and they want me to randomly talk to people that I have no similar interests with. And what I've come to realize is, no, it's not about that. It's about connecting with the people that you have the most overlap with because you'll be able to help each other along the way, along the journey. Always share best practices and don't worry about giving away any proprietary knowledge. It's a good trade. It's just smart if you get caught up in worrying about it. You're going to fail to advance and the, the activity of sharing with mentors and peers will lead to so many positive things that help you go up that whatever the negative costs are aren't going to come anywhere close. Celebrate your peers' accomplishments as if they were your own. Cheer them. Send them notes. Be happy for them. That will come back to you in spades. And then lastly, mint peers don't need to be in your exact field. You know Bobby Knight had sat down with a swimming coach and got knowledge. Some of the entrepreneurs I work with and see. AOs find that it's more interesting to go to a conference on a topic that's a little bit far away because they get more innovative ideas that they can bring back to their field so it doesn't have to be this close. It can be spread out. Now most of you know that this is the way you're supposed to network online, and you should certainly have a LinkedIn profile. You should certainly connect with people. 
I'll give you one piece of advice, which is, I'd be a little stingy with who you link to. I have a rule where I only want to link to people that I would call and trust their advice, because then when I'm searching for a candidate that I want a reference on or something, I don't get random answers. I get people that I know I'm going to use. I think people overproliferate their LinkedIn accounts. But, and for those of you who were here yesterday, I think there is a much more incredible resource, not an alternative, but you should do this in Twitter. Twitter's the most amazing networking and learning network ever built, and for someone that's pursuing their dream job, or chasing a group of mentors or peers. It's remarkable in any given field, 52% to 80% to 80% of the top experts in that field are on Twitter, and they're sharing ideas, and you can connect to them and follow them on your personal feed, and if you get lucky enough and say something they find interesting, they might follow you. And the reason this becomes super interesting is that it unlocks direct message, and now all of a sudden you can communicate directly, electronically, whenever you want with that individual. It's very, very powerful. If you're not using Twitter, you're missing out. I don't even own any shares anymore. Last one, this should be obvious to people, but always to give the majority of the credit to the other people that helped you up along the way. One, it's the right thing to do, and to keep you from being an asshole when you are successful. I find all the greats to do it. It's the right thing to do. Send letters, send gifts anytime you accomplish something in your career. Take the time to send messages back to the people that helped you. I'll tell you a personal story that's quite serious that will help reinforce this. My favorite professor when I was here is Jim Fredrickson, who many of you know passed away this year and along the way. Along my journey three or four times, I took the time to write him a letter, send him a note, send him a note, send him a note, send him a gift and tell him what an impact he had on me. When he passed, I didn't have all this anxiety like I do. I didn't get a chance to tell him. I took the chances to tell him, and I would encourage you guys to do that type of stuff along the way. And then lastly, eventually you got to pay it back. So you become the mentor people start reaching out to. You make sure you take the time. Here are a few examples of that. This is Bobby Knight shortly after one of his sessions with Pete Newell in the next year. Indiana's playing one of Pete's teams. They end up in a tournament together, and Bobby uses the stuff that Pete taught him and beats Pete on the field. And he recalled that notion in the book, and he said, You know, if Pete was willing to do that for me, I got to do it for everybody else. And let me show you statistically a little bit of the impact of what Bobby did later in his career. This is from Wikipedia. These are Bobby's former players that are coaching either D1 or N. BA. And this is his former coaches. They're coaching D1 or NBA. So it's an immense legacy of people that he developed that went on to be successful. If any deep, deep basketball fans in the room, they know that his point guarded army was none other than Mike Shevsky, who was one of people that have now passed him on career, wins 902, and Shevsky asked Bobby Knight to induct him into the Hall of Fame, which is a moving video. You can go watch on YouTube if you're interested. This is Danny. He's probably the most wonderful human, or certainly one of the most wonderful humans I've ever met in my life. He talks here about graciousness. It's evident in every single thing that he does, how he talks to people, how he treats his staff. His book is worth reading if you get a chance, as you can see. I'm a huge fan. And now I'm going to tell you two more stories if we have time. The reason, once again, that I wanted to talk to an MBE. A class is because an MBA degree, and when you're here is an opportune time to chase your dream job. And so the next two stories I'm going to tell you are more contemporary, and they both involve using the MSBEBA program, an MBA program as a way to pivot into success. 
So now we're in Marlow, Oklahoma. All these are in the Midwest. So Sam is my next contestant. Sam grew up in Marlow. His father worked at Halliburton, which is in Duncan, a little bitty town right near it. And he went to Marlow High School, where he also was a multi-sport athlete. Unfortunately, he was 5'9 and 140, so he didn't get to keep playing in college. I'm about to show you the university he attended. He went to the University of Oklahoma, ended up going to Bain. I think he actually worked at Bain Capital, and he was pursuing his career path like he thought he was supposed to. They relocated him to Sydney. He's sitting in one of these high-rises overlooking the Sydney Opera House, and he hears about this book, Moneyball by Michael Lewis. He reads it in three days. He can't get it out of his head. It's consumed him. He decides immediately, not unlike Danny in the restaurant, that this is what he has to do. So he starts applying to business schools. He gets accepted at Harvard and Stanford, and in deciding which one he's going to go to, he goes and he asks for tons of meetings with the schools, and he tells them what he's going to do. I'm going to get a job in sports analytics, come hell or high water. He claims Harvard looks at him like he's crazy. The Stanford staff says, come on, that'd be awesome. He shows up at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Lo and behold, they have a sports management class. Lo and behold, Billy Bean from the Oakland Oz and the Moneyball book is speaking his first semester. He gets to know Billy Bean. Billy Bean introduces him to Michael Lewis. They start spending time together. Michael is in Oakland. The school lets him get to know people at the Niners organization and at several sports organizations all over the country. He combines it with hard work. He says he's sent a hundred letters out to get summer interns. He ends up with one at the Texans. When he gets back from that, Michael Lewis asked him to come over and talk football because he's working on the blind side. So he helps Michael Lewis on the blind side, eventually gets the job with the Houston Rockets. Spent two and a half hours with Lex Alexander. Lex hires him that I believe at 27 years old. Nine months later, the Rockets hired Daryl Morey and the two of them worked together for seven years, I think, and built the best basketball sports analytics department in the country. Daryl won Executive of the Year last year at the Rockets. So at the age of 35, Sam Hickey's named general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers. And this is what, like nine years after he read Moneyball looking over the Sydney Opera House. For those of you who didn't know the story, there's some good and some bad. Sam and Daryl had spent a lot of time studying the ways you could turn a program around. And I've had long discussions with Daryl about it. But they're fascinating the way they think through. But if you're in particular tough spot, the only way to do it is to shed your talent, improve your salary. Cap room. Let your young players get tons of playing time and went through the draft. Now that's the plan Sam took. And like any good entrepreneur, a business person, he told all his constituents, it's about the long term, not the short term. You got to stay with me on this. And he wrote tons of letters. He's very thoughtful. He's very smart. That strategy led to three of the worst seasons in the history of the NBA. But it also led to the drafting of Joel Embiid who's become a close personal friend of Sam's, and some of you may know the rest of the story. Eventually, the ownership got tired of this strategy and cut ties with Sam. About that exact same moment in time, everything started getting better, and they started winning. There were a few fans that supported him along the way, and there are a lot of signs that are way worse than this one. Now we're stinky, but I trust Hinky. But today, for those of the you that know, Vegas has the Sixers as the number two team in the East right now. This is Durant, chose the Texas jersey on purpose instead of the Warriors, talking about how they're the team to watch, and Barkley goes further. He says if they stay healthy, this will be a team to watch for 10 years. So three years of bad, 10 years are good. Sam now is, especially in basketball circles, 
I hope he never goes back to basketball because it'll be more legendary that way. This phrase, this meme, is now an internet meme that's outside of basketball. But some players started using this phrase when they were losing games, and people were upset. Trust the process. No one used it more than Joel, and no one's a bigger fan than Hinkies than Joel. Which frustrates the ownership to no end. They're still missing a GM. Right now, and they're having trouble finding one, and now there's a... This is the new meme, which is a little more aspirational, and then during the draft when they drafted Ben Simmons, there's a video on the web of a sports bar in Philly, where they got everyone together for the draft and before the draft they raised a banner of Hinky and retired it. And Jones won't stop. So this is last year Hinky. I think in a little bit of a jab when the Astros, for those of you who don't know, was also an analytics turnaround. And when the Astros won last year, Hinky wrote, I love it when a plan comes together. And then Joel threw both memes back, trust thee. Process he died for our sins. Then someone in Philly did this. This is a little over the top. So I think it's an amazing story. Then one fun part about this, Sam's now back at Stanford. He's teaching two courses there, and he may play two separate dream jobs. He's hanging out with startups, venture capitalists, and he may do it all over again, which I think is really cool. All right, last one, and this is very near and dear to my heart. There's an executive I work with named Katrina Lake. She grew up in San Francisco, but she went to high school in Minnesota, and I used the map of Minnesota, and I used the map of Minnesota so that they could all be from the Midwest. This is a high school she went to. She went to Stanford, thought she was going to be pre-med, ended up not liking it very much, got an economics major, went to work at a consulting firm called Partyon, and they had a number of clients in the retail and fashion space. And so she noticed that she had an affection for that and started hanging around those clients and focusing on those clients. And while she was visiting those places, she kept asking herself questions like, why does this work this way? She told me she was in a department store and she's like, why are these clothes out here? Why isn't there just like one here and you press a button and then it's put into your dressing room because you keep all the inventory in the back where you could stack it better? Like why? And she just kept saying, why, why, why? Why is this stuff organized this way? And finally, she decided, you know, I'm going to go do something about this. And she came up with a notion of a company that would be a personal shopper for everybody. She didn't quite know how to launch it. So she decided to use her MBA program as a way to launch it. And she told me that, you know, she planned to graduate, but not a much higher bar than a classroom perspective. But she wanted to use the platform as a way to build a company. And so she ended up at Harvard. The first thing she did was scoured LinkedIn and the alumni directory to find anybody that had anything to do with fashion. She was mostly interested in sourcing and merchandising because she didn't have any knowledge there. So she found all kind of contacts in New York. She made personal trips, asked for meetings, not unlike the other people that I've showed you. Next, she found two founders that had launched startups. This is Joanne from Trunk Club and Craig from Shop It to Me, in a similar space, but were a little different. And she got him on the phone. She wanted to hear if what she was thinking about was different and better than what they had done because she wanted it to be different and better. There was a professor at Harvard that had run, had been a CEO. She started writing drafts of what she wanted to do and got him to push back. At first, he was very skeptical, but she said the back and forth helped her and modified her plan quite a bit. In the summer, she went to actually a company actually were invested in called Polybore, which was a social fashion site where people aggregated likes on the web. So Katrina, seeing who had run a huge chunk of the revenue at Google, a.k.a. Google, a CEO, there. So she built that relationship. She also got to study how fashion websites spend time with bloggers. After graduating, she got to come to San Francisco to launch her company. 
and you did two things that are miraculous to me from a mentoring standpoint. The first one is, she found Eric Coulson. He ran all of data science in Netflix. You know you remember the million-dollar prize, all that stuff. That was under Eric. He had recently retired from Netflix and was looking for something to inspire him, and she did. And he became an advisor to the company. Marco Hansen was over 20 years at Gap in merchandising marketing. Same story. Katrina found he. Marco was very excited about helping Katrina. Marco's still on the board today. Marco would spend, you know, a day a week, a day a month, in the early days at the company, helping her almost the way an executive chairman would. She then found two other people. John Fleming was the cut. AOO of Walmart.com. Julie Bernstein I worked with back at Nordstrom years ago. She was the SSMO at Sephora and hanging out in San Francisco. She put Julie on the board, and then a feat I've never seen before. She recruited Eric and Julie off the board and into the company, and they both worked there. Julie as CEO, co-o, and Eric as head of data analytics where he is still today. Coming as 95 data scientist. A fashion company, this is her, at the very beginning. She's trying to figure out exactly what they were going to do. For those of you that don't know how it works, Katrina Lake runs a company called Stitch Fix. You fill out a 15-page profile about yourself. You have a lot of information, way more information than any other retailer has on you. And then you press a button. A stylist looks at your profile and picks five items. The stylist is sitting in front of a dashboard. There's a keep score for every single item in our inventory, for every single shopper that's out there, unique to that individual shopper. As you buy more, the data science studies what you like, what you don't like, and that's how the system works. I was lucky enough to become an investor in this company. Even though it has inventory, has a lot of inventory. There's five warehouses today. And along the way, as it was starting to succeed, this article ran, which is a nice tie to the last one. Forbes called her Fashionista Moneyball, and there are certainly elements that would cause that correlation. In her third year, she went profitable. She only consumed $20 million of venture capital in the company's life when we went public. There was $100 million in cash on the balance. At year five, she hit a billion at revenues. At age 34, she became the youngest founder, CEO, female founder, CEO, ever. Last fall, when we took Stitch Fix public, that's me hiding in the back. I think one thing that really differentiates Katrina, if she were here today, you know she certainly would be proud of this story, but I think she's more proud of how she's been able to use the platform to speak out on social change. This was an infographic that they released about a year ago, but 31% of the engineers are female. 60% of the board, 62% of management team, and 86% of the entire work, and she's not afraid to speak out on topics like this. When we did the bake, offer the IAEPO. She insisted all the investment banks put their diversity record at the front of the pitch deck, every single one of them that came in, and they all did. So these these are the five profiles that I shared with you. I would highlight a couple of things about this. First of all, you know in the first three, if, if I said to you, hey, you say I'm going to MBMB, a school, I want to do something inspiring and have a great career, you wouldn't think I would mention opening a restaurant or being a basketball coach or a folk singer? Like those aren't things you would say, and yet it didn't stop these people from being successful. The other thing that I would highlight is all five of them. I don't think a single one of them started what they're doing for money. It wasn't about it. In each and every story, they were chasing a passion and a dream that allowed them to want to study. Going back to Bobby Knight's, think about having the will to practice, and they all did it on their own. Danny uses a phrase professional research in his book constantly, which I think is an interesting phrase. 
because most of us think about the studying and research we do around curriculum and a teacher. And you don't think about it if you're in finance or marketing or accounting. Do you go home at night and study for yourself? Like to improve your own? You know it's a skill set. Most people don't do that. I think that's interesting. For those of you who decided your dream job is consulting, they say you got to tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So this is for you. Pick a career about where you're passionate. Be obsessive about the learning. Lean on mentors. Lean on peers. Give the credit to someone else and pay it forward. For those in the music, they like music. You know I stole the title of this speech from Tom Petty, who unfortunately passed away this year. He was once asked what advice he'd have for people if he were giving it. And while it's not as ambitious as what I've told you, it's almost the exact same thing on the exact same vector. I'll let you read that yourself. So that's it. Thank you for allowing me to do that. I really appreciate it. Okay, questions. Anyone have any questions? Proudest personal achievement? I've been very fortunate and had the help of a lot of people. There are a couple of companies where very early on we made bets about how we thought they'd evolve. It played out a couple that come to mind. I sat down with Chuck Dippeland in an open table. He's like, I'm going to put this computer in the front of a restaurant and make a business out of that. And he was in like three restaurants. It was very daunting to think. And the only way the business worked is if it took over, you know? And went nationwide and became a network effect with the consumer side. But that's what we thought about it at the moment. And we drew it up. Another one more recently that it's similar. A company called Nextdoor that I'm on the board of. We were three years on a business idea that just didn't work called Fanbase. And the team cut back to seven people and started doing weekly PowerPoints with the board for new ideas and one of them. One of the engineers said my friends got a HOK, and they want us to build a software platform for them to use, and it was almost immediate. We were all like, oh, that's a really good idea, and like, in a minute, you know the founders. Me and others like could see forward as to what could possibly happen in those moments of life, having that. Opportunity to bet and thinking about what it might become, and then seeing it happen to me, is like super fulfilling and interesting. Yeah, great question. There were a lot along the way. I mentioned, you know, here Jim Fredrickson really pushed me. I had been used to having come from engineering. I was used to deterministic questions late, and so in physics or math or whatever, there's an answer to the problem. And I think what Jim knew is that in business, there's not a right answer, and so no matter what I said, he was going to challenge it and make you know come at it from the other side, and then I would be like, oh my god, I got it wrong, but he was pushing me to see both sides of it which was great. There were so many. I knocked on doors on Wall Street, a guy named Al Jackson when I was here in the summer. I literally went to New York and knocked on the doors and begged for a job, and a guy named Al Jackson took a bet on me, and they weren't recruiting at the University of Texas, you know, and they weren't recruiting at the University of Texas, you know, and I see him still occasionally, and he first. Boston not only hired me, but they had a program where they made you as a fresh MBA student, a senior analyst covering companies. They just put you out there, trial by fire, so he had a big impact. Frank Quattrone, I was about to leave the sell side and go to the buy side. This is a true story, and I got a call from Frank Quattrone, the famous banker. He was leaving Morgan Stanley to start a new bank, and he had heard about me, and we sat down, and he said, I want you to come be an analyst, and I said, you know, I don't think I want to be a sell side analyst my entire career, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I'd love to be a venture capitalist, and he said, come work for me. I'll move you to Silicon Valley and introduce you to every venture capitalist I know, which he did. And along the way, we, as you heard, we competed for lead left on the Amazon I.P.O., which is a wonderful bit of trivia. Maybe that's my proudest moment Morgan Grinfell and co. took Amazon public. 
No one will ever remember that. But we beat Morgan and Goldman. Oh, it's just fun. And then all of my partners, all the founding partners at Benchmark, taught me the art of being a venture capitalist, so part of my work is the biggest passion. You know part of who I think when I was here? I discovered it. I want to be a venture capitalist and a couple of things that come together. My sister went to Ross and was employed 60, three to compact, and so she got options and like, I was like, wow, that's different. Then I started to understand what was going on. I went to work at Compact too a couple years. I also, while I was at Compact's, read a Peter Lynch book and started trading stocks on Prodigy Light. And I love Borlin. I used Turbo Pascal, and like Borlin went public, and like, wow, I was at Compact. I bought the stock. It went from like 12 to 80, and like, so I was hooked on the gambling. And the invest you know, the investing side and the technology side, I also have zero chance of ever leading a group of people anywhere to anything I have, a DD, and I don't like to lead. I'm thrilled that there are people that do so that I can have a symbiotic relationship with them, and so it's that combining of making bets around intuition about where the technology can take us that I think is what I get super excited about. I also, having worked on Wall Street for a while, I like the slower pace of venture, and that it's, you know, like you look at what Henke went through. It's not measured that quickly. It's measured kind of over a 7 to 10 year time frame, which gives you the opportunity to really hone the, the products and companies that you're working with. The guys on the buy side like the Daily Mark. I just don't think I could live with that. She asked about a moment of fear. I have so many of them. I think I'll give you a couple examples like when Frank moved me from New York to Silicon Valley. I had decided I didn't want to cover the computer industry anymore because they were going to combine personal computers with big companies. I was going to have to cover up in deck and my brain wanted to be going towards the new stuff. So I told this to Frankie. He said, okay, we'll get someone else to do PCs you cover the internet, and I thought that's awesome. But there's this chart I use. Sometimes that's a euchre, and on this axis, it's what you think you know and on this axis is what you really know, and that first part of the journey you actually get anxiety and drop. So I started reading about the internet, and I realized how little I knew, and I freaked out. I had an anxiety moment, and my advice is to push on through, like you'll get down to the bottom of the U-curve, and you'll find your footing, and you'll come up the other side. Same thing happened in Venture. The very first company that I invested in was a company called Employees Out of Williams College. I moved to Atlanta. We hired a new CAO. I went to a board meeting one day, and the results were disastrous. And Ventures is kind of a weird thing, because you have this partnership. We go out and you do most of your work by on your own. And I literally, I think I was about to break down in hives and I like I asked for a break and I went and walked around the building and I remember this to this day. I was thinking, what have you gotten yourself into? Like, how could you ever possibly be successful in this industry? You have no idea what to do. And it's in my brain that day, that moment. And so, you know, I would just tell you to keep pushing. Like you get past it. You start to find your feet and you make it through. My least favorite things in my job. There's some ridiculously bureaucratic things. Anybody that works with stars like 409A, evaluations or pain in the butt, and they're actually bad, bad, bad math and bad finance. Those things bug me. You know any time that you're unsuccessful in getting a founder to be successful. It's tough, and you know there's a lot of people that can start companies. A lot of great people start a lot of great companies to go on and emerge as Bezos has done as a grade K. K. Oh. Also, over a 20-year time frame, your odds of getting to that point just go down and down and down. And so, you know, I'm thrilled to have work with people like Katrina or Matt Maloney at Grubhub or Spencer at Zillow that have risen to the thing, but they don't all make it. 
And so sometimes along the way, you're having conversations about how you're going to have to find a replacement or bring in a new C. Gayo. And those are immensely difficult because you build such deep personal relationships. I almost put it in the deck. There's a book called Shark Proof by Harvey McKay that I read when I was here. So it's probably outdated and doesn't use any of the digital tools. But he had a whole section on your dream job and how to think about it over the long term, not just like drop everything, do it right now. He would say like, keep a folder in your drawer, like keep kind of shifting towards it. When I was here, I thought about the idea of being a VC and I went and talked to the people that were practicing it around town here and they told me I should go work for 20 years and then we'll talk. Well, that was that. Felt like just a door that I couldn't get through and so I went to Wall Street just because I'd been convinced I couldn't be a venture capitalist. But after I started succeeding, I started tilting back that direction because that's where I wanted to go. And then when that opportunity came for someone, that could take me towards it. I jumped at it. And so just like, let let where you want to be, be the compass, even if you can't go for it today for whatever reason. Any last questions? If you're going to start a company, yeah, I mean, you could certainly be passionate about doing a startup and not be passionate about the vertical. I will tell you, it'll wane over time. I've worked with founders that have done that. They're really good and built companies that are worth, you know, 700 million, 800 million, but they usually sell instead of keep going because, and I've heard the phrase, I don't want to out anybody, but like, well, you know, this isn't really my passion, the category. And so I think optimally you want it all the lineup, right? You want it. You want to have passion about it. Katrina cares about fashion. Like it's something that matters to her. It makes a difference. It makes a difference if you want to go all the way like you know, and so maybe that's to higher bar. One last one, maybe not okay? Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this summary. To leverage our hundreds of book summaries and other worthwhile resources, subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, and join the Latticework, our curated learning community. You can learn more at blast.com. That's B-L-A-S dot com.